Greetings, P2BP listeners. Here is a talk from a recent appearance I did on Tim Kelly's Our Interesting Times podcast, and I wanted to give a quick introduction and caveat for those listening. And if you want to skip straight to the discussion, feel free to do so. I'll put the time marker in the description. This intro will probably run just under 10 minutes or so. Since this episode deals with sensitive topics, and in light of current events, it's probably more necessary to make this disclaimer. Despite everything being mentioned, is pretty much common sense, and it promotes treating people and situations equally as everybody claims they desire to do, but they don't often do it in practice. Now, obviously, the media plays a huge role in fomenting this disconnect. There ends up being a justification of bad behavior by playing the victim card and saying that, well, since they were fighting fascism or oppression, then they could do whatever they wanted to fight it, and they can't be blamed for any injustices on their own side. And often they will over-exaggerate the oppression that they are under in order to try to justify their bad behavior. That perhaps also applies to today. We'll let you decide. But in the spirit of equality, our problem here equally is with people bearing false witness in any situation. And that is at the heart of what's going on with this converso crisis and dealing with it in the Spanish Jesuits. And that is obviously the topic of discussion. And thus, this is breaking a commandment, not bearing false witness, which is found in both Judaism and Christianity. So whichever side of the conflict they're on, if they're doing those things, that is what we are trying to not do and trying to not promote. Now we all do this. We all make up lies. We all, you know, say things that aren't true depending on the circumstances. But there's a difference between the reasons why you're doing it and how they primarily affect things or secondarily affect things or they peripherally or tertiary, uh, tertiarily, is that a word? I don't know, affect things. So the point being, this isn't like you're lying about eating a cookie when you're claiming you're on a diet. These are far more serious issues. And the situation of some Spanish Jews after expulsion and they're not wholeheartedly converting is understandable. When they were expelled from Spain, a lot of them didn't have the means to leave, and so they converted. They kind of had to. It was a bad situation all around, but there are things that led to that situation, and a lot of their own helped foment that situation, and they suffered for it. And this is similar to how the peaceful protesters, as everybody wants us to separate out, well, many of them simply looked on and watched the looting and destruction coming from their own groups. Yet at the same time, they didn't exactly do anything to stop it. Maybe some of them filmed it on camera. But it probably would have been in their best interest to stop it because then people wouldn't be conflating them with all the people who are looting. Now certainly it's a tough situation to be in. I wouldn't want to be in it. And I've been in those situations myself and sometimes I've made a more honorable choice. Sometimes I didn't speak up and I made a more passive or cowardly choice. But this is the difference between brave and cowardly actions. They either enable or help stop all of the problems, despite some people reacting to the brave actions in a very 
vengeful and spiteful way because their own bad actions are being exposed. So this was a buildup that to the expulsion I'm talking about that Catholic Spain made many concessions to try and solve the problem for centuries. So it's not like this is a one-sided issue. Uh, there's a two-way street here. And in two-way street conflicts, sometimes there's more cars on one side or the other. And in that same conflict, sometimes one side that has more cars in one instance has less cars in another. And so you always have to deliberate these things and consider them. And on any side of the conflict with these um, basic things we need to consider... This is very applicable to today's current crisis in the USA with everything going on. Now, the subversion that perhaps happened um, by some of these Jews converting and bearing false witness in doing so, well, these same tactics were used by non-Jews in the French Revolution. And this was demonstrated in the Memoirs of Jacobinism by Augustine Barwell, something we've been going over extensively in the member section of rockstaresoterica.com's member section, and they were all behaving in these very same ways that we're pointing out here that might be going on with some of these conversos and some of the old Christians reacting to them as well. And none of these people in this French Revolutionary rebellion that we are mentioning or talking about were Jews, and they often didn't like Jews. Now we're talking about people like Voltaire and D'Alembert, Frederick the Great, etc. It's the behavior of all these people that's the problem. It's not some faded biological background. But are there also certain worldviews that tend to enable some of this behavior? And that's another thing we would want to consider as well. And ultimately, the people who get screwed over because of this are, number one, the Jews who sincerely converted, Number two, the Jews who didn't convert and didn't subvert Christian society, even if they didn't like it or were at odds with it. Number three, the Jews who converted because of bad circumstances and weren't fully invested in it, but they didn't make waves. They didn't cause problems. Number four, the Christians who were trying to defend themselves under the same criteria that would apply to any other situation, yet for some reason, this one has an exemption, and they're called anti-Semitic and hateful. And number five, Christians who want to be welcoming, but their charity is being exploited. And number six, it's the basic order of society that suffers, the one that gives stability to people who, generally speaking, are obeying the laws and not causing controversies or fomenting revolution and trying to gain some advantage in secret in the process. And so in such complex situations, I would say that each individual involved must be looked at closely, and despite the number of assumptions that can come with a general tendency that is real, or a pattern that you can find, it must also be set aside when those patterns don't match up to what might be expected. And again, this is on either the new Christian side, or the conversos as they're called, or the old Christian side. And there's also people who are often stuck in the middle, people who have bipolar behavior, and it's not very clear as to what their motivations are. 
And we can never really know in an ultimate sense what people's hearts and minds are saying internally and what things they've been affected by. And that's the point of leaving those types of judgments up to a power greater than ourselves. So to wrap up, if you want to know more on this topic, we discuss these issues in depth in the P2BP episode number 24. I also have a blog article I mentioned at the beginning of the talk with Tim Kelly, and I'll put a link to that in the description to properly demonstrate the sourcing for all the matters we discussed here. And a special thanks to Tim for having me on, and enjoy the discussion. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. They will run you dizzy. They will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to. That's how the powerful keep their power. Don't you read the papers? The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Welcome to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It's my pleasure to have Michael Joseph back on the show. Michael is the host of the Proud to Be Profane podcast. Um, now, Michael, how are you doing? Good, Tim. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, tonight you want to talk about, uh, well, the Jesuits, its Jesuit order, its origins, the history of its founder, Loyola, Ignatius Loyola, the issue of crypto-Judaism, and how that um, impacted uh, the politics and culture of, of 16th and 17th century Spain. Um, of course, the Jesuits are, I think, now are, I think, uh, <laughs> clearly a de facto globalist fifth column within the church. Uh, uh, but was that order infiltrated from the start? Uh, there's a lot of you know, you know, speculation and research uh, in, you know, investigating that, that very issue. The Converser issue in the, fifth, in the 15th and 16th century in Spain, uh, in particular, uh, with that issue, there's a lot of grounds for for crypto infiltration. But much of the um, of the criticism or, or calumny directed at the Jesuit order, uh, I know, derives from from this black legend. And you know, after all, the achievements of the Jesuit order, particularly its missionaries in the New World, were nothing short of miraculous. And um, if not suppressed, could have provided an alternative model to the current Masonic New World order. But that wasn't how God wanted it to be. Apparently, things were different. Things of history has unfolded differently. 
So um, the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola, uh, I'll let you take it from there. Sure. Um, well, I guess at the onset, I'd just say that I have a blog article that I wrote. Um, <laughs> it's uh, still, you know, not exactly proofread, but I'll give you the link and uh, people can go to it. Uh, it's been wanting to do some blog posts, but since I have so many things on my plate, you know, you have these ideas, they don't exactly come to fruition, but uh, that will have all of the uh, the source reading and references uh that are relevant to what we're talking about. And then, um, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, in the alternative media, there's a lot of, uh, things going on where people talk about the Jesuits and whatnot. And this is obviously, uh, something I talk about a lot because it was one of the main issues, uh, that I encountered when looking into, you know, all these different factions. And, uh, you have this dialectic of the more, Protestant types and then the more occult theosophical or Masonic types uh, that again they they both don't like each other but they both say the same types of things about the Catholic Church and the Jesuits and so why is that unity there and um, you know I think addressing the accusations of Ignatius Loyola being a crypto illuminist Jew or Alambrado, and then somehow that's supposedly tied to the Bavarian Illuminati and the French Revolution and all that stuff. Uh, you hear that all the time. And, you know, once you start digging into a few of these sources, it becomes very apparent that that is not at all the case. The Jesuits and the Illuminati or the Freemasons are like oil and water. And you can read it from the Masons and the Illuminati themselves. And Maybe in a future episode, we could talk about Barwell's memoirs, which clearly makes the distinction between the two. But there's also the issue of what I call <clears throat> what I kind of call the wheat and the tares battle. Um, you know, and that's a biblical theme, right? I mean, Christ basically one of the parables is about that. The early church, there will be wheat and tares. They'll grow together, but there's a harvest and then they kind of get weeded out. And I'd say that that kind of reflects the issue of the Jesuits at the start from roughly, uh, you know, its inception 1540 till the end of the century around 1600. Um, and then certain groups get weeded out and you can uh, apply which one you think are the, the wheat and the tares. Uh, that will obviously play into a factor what your viewpoint on which ones are which. But um, the book uh, that really helps illustrate this it's called The Jesuit Order as a Synagogue of Jews. It's by the historian Robert Alexander Marix. Uh, he writes a lot of books on the Jesuits. I think he's uh, affiliated with Boston College on some level. Um, and basically you can get this book for free on uh, Brill Online, which is great because the Brill books are usually at least $100 a piece, probably more. So you can download it yourself and go through some of the reading um, just to fact check what we're saying here. And uh, I guess I just outlined the basic timeline here. And I think that that will really um, kind of be useful to summarize things at the beginning. Um, basically, from the years 1540, when the Jesuits began, to 1593, the order accepted conversos, meaning people who were Jewish and converted. Uh, legally towards that. There were a lot of controversies during that time, but uh, 
no real actual uh, writing saying they could not enter. And then uh, in 16, or excuse me, 1593, that changed and there were statutes in place to not allow anybody with converso lineage into the Jesuits at all. Now, um, wasn't that, I guess, in the 1490s, I think 1492, you had Granada and the the final expulsion from Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula under Ferdinand and Isabella. And in this period, uh, from what I understand, there was a mass mass conversion. I mean, their conversions were so successful uh, some say argue too successful that you this is this is what uh, created the crisis because there are so many that many of them weren't sincere and um, this created this crisis in in, in Spain and at that time. Yeah, I mean, if you're expelling the Jews from Spain, then you're not going to have any more official Jews because the Jews had worked along with the Muslims, particularly in like cities like Toledo. And like and for centuries, and so they were, they had, they were well established with with it, with um, in Muslim Spain. So when the the Christians defeated the Muslims, uh, the 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 Jews were put in an awkward situation. They, they had to leave, or they had to convert, more or less, right? That was the yeah, and that's addressed in the book uh, here and there, and that's really one of the main concerns that they often point back to um, the people who are part of the anti-converso legislation. Um, and so basically from 1608 or excuse me, 1593 to 1608, there's none allowed in whatsoever. And then in 1608, they allow, uh, conversos to be accepted again, but their background could be reviewed up to five generations. And they were very suspect of this, uh, infiltration, uh, potential. And then that lasted for many, many years. Uh, all the way up until 1946. And it's pretty interesting <laughs> that, that the book reveals that these changes in 1946 were almost certainly under the sway of the Shoah, direct quote. So because of the Holocaust, these changes to having no worries or uh, discrimination whatsoever about having Jews enter the Jesuits were completely done away with much like in the entire western world yeah and then yeah. considering you know some of the, the things around vatican ii and changing their uh positions or you know being led into positions to have pe- people change the position on uh the conversion mission for the jews and stuff like that you know past that you were just on um but you know that's uh three hundred something plus years of the Jesuits, uh, you know, looking out for a Jewish infiltration. So for me, when people are trying to tell me that the Jesuits are the Jews, uh, that timeline does not work at all because for the bulk, the majority of their history, uh, they were very well aware and looking out for the problem, and I would say were probably the scourge, of, of a lot of the uh, <laughs> Jewish infiltration. Um, and not and not just that, but Masonic infiltration and, you know, uh, battling the Protestants. So threefold battle going on there. Um, so uh, I think what we can do here in this uh, show is kind of discuss what was going on from the inception up until the purge happened. And, and uh, it's very complex. And, uh, you know, like with anything, you have to... 
you know, basic outline should put some of those, you know, accusations. People trying to associate them with the with the Illuminati. A lot of misguided. In the late 19th century, Jews in the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that the Nazis conflate or conflated the, the Jews in the Catholic Church uh, to varying degrees. But for some reason, when we look back on that, everybody wants to conflate the Nazis with the Catholic Church. I'm wondering how that works. Um, so, you know, go figure. But, anyways. Um, so yeah, before I uh, move on into this, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add uh, before we get going here. Okay, well, uh, Society of Jesus. I understand that Jesuits was sort of a term of derision, and they kind of adopted it <laughs> at first. Uh, what do you mean? But just the name is. Well, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it was kind of a. A name they adopted. It was uh, uh, first that people referred to them so derisively as Jesuits. Uh, uh, and I guess there was some, I guess, some jealousy or competition with the order because uh, it's Society of Jesus. Traditionally, the orders didn't, they were usually named after a saint. And they're, they're, this is the only order that's named after Jesus Christ himself. And so, so you're saying it's a bold statement? Yeah. That- and so there's some resentment, from what I understand, initially. And of course, I think Ignatius Loyola, he gets he. He discerned his uh, vocation, right? He, he was recovering. He was a soldier. And so this is sort of his attitude. He was, a, uh, he was a former soldier. And I understand he discerned his vocation while he was recovering from a wound uh, he got in battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about the, uh, the origin of the name. I know that some people get cranky about it and uh, say that's, you know, like you said, uh, kind of a, a bold statement. But... Um, I would say that, like Christ says, you'll be hated in my name, and boy, I've never seen that applied to more, <laughs> any other group in uh, you know sort of the the more modern world than the Jesuits, and usually it's by the Masons, the Protestants, and then um, you know a lot of Jewish factions, but they're a bit more subtle about it, and then obviously we have these infiltration aspects to it. Um, so, I guess. Uh, the other thing I would mention is that in this book that I found interesting, um, Merrick's narrative is basically uh, that, you know, there, there was a group of these early Jesuits that were, you know, probably more of the liberal progressive tradition that you would find akin to the Jesuits today, or at least the majority of them. And that seems to be, you know, what he's trying to promote. He's trying to say, you know, this Dark Ages mindset was there and uh you know he he's against that right so he's trying to expose that but also kind of co-opt it would seem the more liberal uh jesuits and their rhetoric during this time and i think that that's interesting in conjunction with you know francis getting elected being of the jesuit order if you can kind of try to co-opt some progressive jesuits and be like well this is what they were really about and then for hundreds of years, they went down that Dark Ages direction. But now we're going to focus on that. And it's almost like part of the transmutation, if you can see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe there's like this reinvigorated interest to bring these issues up, but to try to help further that more progressive or, I don't know, humanist uh, 
positions that kind of came from that. And I would even say the word humanism uh, can be often conflated. Uh, there's actually an interesting book by a Jesuit uh, from the early 1900s. His name is Robert Schwickerath on the Jesuit education. And I remember reading through some of that and I was like, wow, you know, this just makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it, it didn't see anything wrong. And he was basically saying that Renaissance humanism there's ways you can define it. And he was saying that that liberal modernist version th that, you know, he's against that, but there's a way to take things of the Renaissance and show that there was a, a way of adapting to all of that stuff that was Christian and did help to strengthen the church and make a lot of uh, progress under their uh, definition of it. That would be in accordance with his traditional principles. So it becomes a battle of definitions, Right. You get broad words, humanism or progress. Well, how do you define those things? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, we all kind of think those things are negative because of how we see them constantly defined for us today. So just making that quick little distinction. But um, anyways, so the, the backdrop is we got the old Christians uh, that represent, you know, the the traditional Catholic lineages. And then we have the new Christians, those Jews who have recently converted, and then sometimes they're Muslims. Um, but it seems like the issues, generally speaking, tended to arise from the Jewish converts more so than the Muslims, uh, at least as far as I can tell. And like I said, I think this is kind of like a wheat and the tares story. Um, and uh, despite the bad apples, you also have to take into consideration that there's conversos that are going to be sincere. And in fact, they probably get the worst shaft in all of this, mm -hmm. um, because if you have either a predominance or uh, a predominance of zealous infiltrators who get more of the spotlight, <laughs> it's going to make it seem like, you know, that's the bulk of them. Uh, but as we know, the leadership influences the people below. And so, you know, that that's why you have these battles of kind of extremes going on, I would say. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's a lot of different factors that could be at play. It's just like when, uh, if you had a, a converso with an agenda who got in charge of the inquisition, well, they could start taking that inquisition and targeting either the good conversos that are sincere and they don't like them. So they could probably use any sort of actual, uh, prejudice that is not merited from any old Christians and try to prod them and then it attacks their enemies. Um, or, you know, you can even attack old Christians with the Inquisition if you were able to have a position of power. And I would argue that that happened with the Marquis de Pombal. Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. Uh, Skype went down. So you're talking about the Marquis de Pombal? Yeah, uh, just my point was that uh, the Inquisition under him uh, was, I believe, given over to his brother. And so he started persecuting their Catholic enemies and, you know, uh, trumping up charges on particular Jesuits and getting them, you know, executed. So it can go both ways when you have infiltrators in charge of these institutions. And ironically, the Masons will bash the Inquisition all day long but they were probably secretly loving that because he seems to have all these connections and protecting Freemasonry in Portugal. That's a whole other tangent. I won't get into that, but we can probably, you know, 
touch upon that if we go into Barwell's memoirs at some point in the future. So he was also instrumental in the uh, uh, suppression of the uh, the Jesuit reductions in Paraguay. These yes, this, this missionary work that did remarkable work in you know uh, teaching them written language, of course, prop, you know, spreading propagating the faith, but also teaching them agriculture, manufacturing, and these things. Sort of a it would have been an alternative model to what you know. Latin America, much of the world has been, been subjected to, with, you know, as opposed to slavery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you think about the timeline here, you know, that's all happening, you know, 18th century. So this is, you know, 150, 200 years removed from all of this controversy. So if there were particular crypto infiltrators, they would have had a real hard time getting their buddies in um, once they started looking out for this kind of thing. Um, and especially considering that 10 year timeline where they didn't let any in. And that's where people will criticize for the, uh, you know, limpieza de sangre, the purity of blood. Mm -hmm. uh, but that happened during that 10 year period. So if you think about it, though, from the perspective of a crypto infiltrator, an active one, um, well, that is not an option anymore. You can't get your buddies in. You're either stuck in it uh, or, you know, you got to look elsewhere. So perhaps they did. And so there is uh, an issue where it's identified in the book that some of these early Jesuits did go out into the missionaries in the 16th century. And this is probably why you have some controversies like in Asia or Africa or whatever. But is it it's still a wheat and a tares issue where there's some good Jesuits mixed in with some bad ones. But then you have conflicts like I think that the, the Jesuits when they were in Asia they had internal conflicts there. Some were being a little bit too liberal with incorporating, quote-unquote, pagan practices. Oh, that was in Japan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my point is, like, the the book was saying that that first crop did go out to evangelize, and that was when there were potentially, you know, more suspect conversos in that had, you know, basically uh, an open invitation during that time. And then... During the the seventeen or excuse me the eighteenth century, like we're talking about with the Jesuits in in Paraguay and whatnot, you know, over all those years, it's hard to sustain that infiltration. If you can see what I'm saying, and so, um, you know, d during that time, I would say the the eighteenth century and the nineteenth century is when they were probably at their strongest uh, in terms of the bulk of them seem to be much more tied to traditional Catholicism, and that's ironically when the worst propaganda happens against them especially i would say in the 19th century uh and uh the anti-jesuit stuff that i've read coming from you know protestant germany whether it's the liberals uh or the you know turns into the pan-german you know pre-nazi types or even in america that there's this alliance between uh france and america in the 19th century uh crazy propaganda so that's you know something for another time but if you put it all in the timeline of what's going on here, I'd say it all fits that, you know, this is when they were the strongest and uh, fighting against Whig masonry and capitalism. Like you said, they had an alternative model to that dialectic. Um, but of course, all of those machinations of Palm Ball and these strange agents like John Cousteau's. And there's like a big battle in masonry during that time uh, between the eco or uh, Jacobite masonry and the more Whig type. And so 
you know, that that's kind of the issue here. That's the the wheat and the tares battle that's going into masonry as well later on. And so, you know, back to the point, I was just trying to say that these issues are complicated, especially during these times where there are conversos in and some are causing a bit of a controversy. Uh some when uh, the book demonstrates the writings of some converso Jesuits and they seem pretty Catholic to me. I don't see any issues. Um, and so you have all kinds of different variables here. You could even have somebody who's more neutral going in, but maybe they're buddies and they identify war with some of the conversos and maybe there's active infiltrators and they influence the more neutral ones. So, you know, you can't really, uh, you, you have to read each individual Jesuits writing, but the point is, there are certain movements that come out of this that maybe we can look at as being a bit more suspect. So that's moving on to uh, kind of like a little battle that happens here. But before I go into the that little uh, memorialesis movement, it's called. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add. Well, I in the um, I guess in, in the 1500s there was a um, people had noticed a lot of the conversos were able to insinuate themselves in higher positions. Uh, within the church and within the Jesuit order itself, and this caught a lot of people's attention. Meaning, why are they getting all? Basically, why are they getting all the good jobs? <laughs> <laughs> so it's created some resentment, and some people have observed that um, conversos tended to uh, uh, get in and then uh, 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 promote uh, their buddies, more or less, their fellow conversos. And s people like Kevin McDonald have written about this, and so this this people identified this as uh, what they would describe as typical Jewish behavior, meaning. Uh, they get in, they, they promote themselves, insinuate themselves, and they subvert. And he said there, this this was, was what was being suspected or identified in, in, in the 1500s in Spain. Um, and so this would create a lot of suspicion. We see it today, some have called it the neo-converso issue, where a lot of Jews convert to Christianity, and then they get inside the church, and they make uh, anti-Semitism a big issue within the Catholic Church. <laughs> mm. So they, yeah. not, they can't shed their bad habits, and they, they don't shed their Jewish identity, and you're, that's supposed to wash away with the, with, the, with, with, with the baptism, and it doesn't. And so what, that's what Kevin McDonald, when he writes about this, said this, this was what was being identified. And this has sort of created this sort of this collectivist exclusionary movement, which is sort of a practical way to deal with this problem. And this, this sort of then, then it becomes a sort of purity of blood thing because that becomes a, the easiest way to deal with this. You kind of throwing your hands up, saying we can't really unravel this or sort these things out anymore. So we got to go this route just just for the purposes of you know of practicality, if nothing else. Yeah, I was just going to say. To me, it seems that this purity of blood issue is a more pragmatic way of dealing with it. Because also consider at that time. You know, we don't have all the nice modern advancements that we have now. And so when there is an issue, the the, the solution is probably going to be a little bit more crude. You know, it's similar to the, the Cathar Crusade. Mm -hmm. That was a necessary thing. But, it, you know, when you have a big crusade, there's a lot of collateral damage. And mm -hmm. then that's the whole reason why they brought about the Inquisition, to be able to target individual subverters and avoid a giant crusade that's going to kill more innocent people. So there's a progress here that we could probably call a real progress, mm -hmm. um, but there's going to be this alternative progress that happens here with a lot of these uh, humanist conversos that are tied to what's called the memorialistas uh, movement. So I'll get into that because this is kind of at the heart of the issue. It would seem that the real issue is with the Spanish Jesuits, um, whereas 
the the Jesuits of Italy and, you know, just throughout Europe, uh, this is where kind of the battle was. It was more or less the Rome, uh, Rome versus Spain in terms of the Jesuits. Uh, and so what ended up happening is um, you have... Well, basically, I guess if you go to the uh, the superior generals, that kind of tells the story as well. So you have Ignatius Loyola is the first superior general. Um, and then uh, basically his successor, I believe, uh, basically kind of continues on. Uh, now, that, here's another is- interesting issue. In the book, Merricks identifies different scholars who argue different things. There are people who claim that Loyola was more anti-converso, and that's the point of this book, to point out that he wasn't anti-converso in particular ways. Um, And we'll discuss Loyola later. But when the third superior general came, this is really interesting. He gave these conversos a lot more refuge. And, of course, this uh, third general was Francisco de Borgia, the great-grandson of Pope Alexander VI, probably the most controversial of all the Borgia popes, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So he is the one who is giving them more sway. Um, And so after Borgia, you know, the empire strikes back, so to speak, where now we have the anti-converso people who are forming into a group because they're probably starting to see a little bit of an issue taking place here. And then the two superior generals from this group are the next two successors after Borgia. And this was Everard Mercurian and Claudio Aquaviva. They get pretty sweet names, <laughs> but uh, so so yeah. So these are the the main opposers of these Spanish Converso Jesuits, and they happen to be the superior generals. So obviously they got a lot of sway. Uh, they're the head, right? So there's a couple other figures that are part of this anti-Converso lobby. Uh, an Italian Jesuit who is the assistant general, uh, Benedetto Palmio. He's amongst many others that were part of this anti-Converso lobby, and he said that the multitude of the Spanish Jesuits were insolent and it was growing. That's basically his rhetoric. Um, now Merrick says that a lot of historians have omitted his racist statements. Um, and then you'll find historians who say that this was actually a socio-economical or socio-religious battle and that the race aspect is being added into it and being overplayed. It was not more of a, like a, that's a 20th century concept anyway. Exactly. Racism. Um, I mean, that's like you, no one were what you were talking about. If you're, you talk about racism in the 16th century or 17th century. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. The context of the times matters. Yeah. And, you know, Merrick's outlines that there was a transition of socioeconomic or socio-religious gripes against the conversos into the racial aspect because they started using the word pure. Mm-hmm. But how you define pure again, that's a macro word. Are they talking about pure spirituality? Are they talking about pure physical blood? It's never really quite addressed in that sense. And any of the statements that I've read in the book, um, so far, you know, they, they are obviously going to seem very horrible by today's standards, but, uh, what's the context of the times? Yeah. And then, and then also, um, there's basically some other historians have identified that there's three polemics against these conversos. One of them is an economic one, accusing them of usurious type activities. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other is a more psychological one. It's uh, tied to 
you know, a, an intellectual arrogance uh, that that people were griping about that they found predominant amongst these conversos. And then the third is physical. And I found it interesting that under this physical category, they categorize ungratefulness. I don't see how that has anything to do with your physical body, but <laughs> apparently they're throwing that in there. Um, and then there's some bodily features that they attach. Now, here's a question. With those three criteria, which are the primary and secondary and tertiary ones, right? Mm -hmm. Because when people start making gripes about behavior of people, usually that kind of leads to caricatures and yeah, cartoons yeah. Of course, naturally. Yeah. But is that the primary mode of expression or is that just a byproduct? Yes, right? good point. Yeah. So these are all questions that you would have to ask and that you can't really know at the time. So why do we have to assume that it's based purely upon like this physical blood or race or whatever? Well, it's striking that some of the, a lot of those criticisms or gripes uh, resonate throughout the ages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so and, and um, you know, as far as I understand, it seemed like the actual focus on physical race came after the Enlightenment, which brought us to a materialist pagan mindset. And mm. so is that the byproduct, uh, byproduct of it? But setting aside that tangent, um, uh, basically, the other interesting thing is Merricks tells us in the beginning, if you want to know more about the racial interpretation of this scenario versus the socioeconomic one, he suggests various sources to read. And I happen to notice a lot of them are Jewish historians who are going to interpret it in the racial way. Um, and one of them's Benjamin Netanyahu's father. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> ben Zion, Ben Zion Netanyahu. And I think in one of our previous podcasts, I was talking about how when I read Henry Kamen's Inquisition book, he makes a special note thanking him for helping him convince him that there was no converso agenda to infiltrate. <laughs> <laughs> so again, is that a, you know, yeah. a potential bias that's being inserted there? Well, the, the, yeah, this is the problem with Jewish historiography or history or whatever. It's, got, it's dominated by Jews. So it's going to be self-serving. Yeah. Or there's that certainly that potential. And I've yeah. also noticed when I've read Jewish history books, some are very honest about, the false conversions and be like, yep, as soon as they left Spain, they went right back to Judaism. And or they'd say, yep, the, the Jews help promote the Cathar heresy. They help aid and abed them. They'll, they'll admit that. And then some will try to act like they were all sincere conversions. And I think I believe that Netanyahu was one of them. I believe also Norman Cantor is one. I remember reading there was an article that said there were basically three historians on, uh, you know, conversos. And they take the position that, oh, yeah, they were all sincere. Most of them were. And then you have all these examples of them throwing off their shackles of Catholicism, as they might call it, once they reach the Ottoman Empire or once they reach Amsterdam or, you know, whatever. So there seems to be two conflicting things going on here. But regardless, there's a lot of these uh, different historians, Norman Roth, Bruce Rosenstock, uh, that are suggested to go for, to if you want to know more about this racial interpretation of this time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also ones that aren't. Uh, one's name's Jan, Janet uh, Edelman. Apparently, she seems to be a kind of a feminist tied to Rockefeller support, so I don't know how much you want to trust that one. Um, and so the others are Spanish people. So these are all the ones that are promoting a racial interpretation. That's the point Merrick's directs you to those sources. So I would say, as far as I could tell, you might want to be suspect about potential biases for some of those again we'll let you decide but regardless um 
there, there's also people who debate that uh, it was just socio-religious connotations. And apparently in the 1990s, there was a debate and there was a Spanish Jesuit, maybe still alive. I don't know if this is the 90s. Francisco de Borgia Medina. Uh, he argued that WASP scholars were promoting the racial version and he's saying that it only had social religious connotations. So, you know, there you go. We have a, a a Spanish Jesuit. Again, he's a modern Jesuit, but doesn't that doesn't mean that they're all modernists? You know, like people like uh, John Hardin. If you listen to his Jesuit lectures, he lived throughout the entire 20th century, and he seems pretty orthodox to me. So they're out there, but are those the ones that get the spotlight? Are those the ones writing for American Magazine? Probably not. Um, I don't know about this guy, but again, if you're arguing that the WASP scholars are trying to make it about race and then calling the Spanish backwards and obsessed with race, you know, is there an agenda there? Well, that's the irony you get with 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 uh, uh, with with Jews themselves is that they they claim that they're uh, a separate people and they have they have a right to their own nation state, exclusively Jewish state. And anyone else of any other ethnic group makes that claim and they're being racist. It's, you know, it's. Yeah. And the other irony is um, I was looking in a bit more to the black legend and it actually seems like there's a lot of racism built into that. Um, so it's really ironic that they're, uh, you know, we're blaming here and this, this racial interpretation of the Converso crisis these backwards Spanish Catholics for being racist. Yeah, they're Mediterranean. They're darker than us Nordics. Right, right. And so yeah, I've yeah. been uh, also finding in certain books that uh, there was a wasp agenda to conflate the Spanish with the Moors mm -hmm. and say that their inherent backwardness, apparently, is because they were mixed with Moor blood or African blood. And you can see this. Uh, there's a book called Rereading the Black Legend. It's kind of written from a leftist SJW perspective, but it's got some really interesting resources. And, uh, you know, if anybody gets a copy of it, uh, Chapter 5 discusses all of this stuff. And basically, uh, there was an agenda to conflate the Africans and the Moors with the Spanish Catholics to portray them as, again, backwards. And then there's even, like, uh, depictions in art where they have Spanish Catholics with black slaves and they make an effort to try to make their characteristics similar, like they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. So they give like the Spanish guys like, you know, big butts and stuff like that. And then they have like a, a cross on the top that's kind of slanted, like, oh, this is a slanted <laughs> Christianity. And, you know, the book at the beginning gives you the depictions and it outlines all this. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty interesting that, you know, you see it. Uh and then it gives you all these examples of that, uh, you know, blaming those Mediterranean cultures for being backwards because they're African. So isn't it ironic that the rhetoric from the people crying everything's racist and, you know, Christianity's the, the problem? Well, oftentimes they promote the black legend, which is based upon conflating Spanish Catholic with black people. And that's supposedly why they're backward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you're actually promoting the racist doctrine, uh, ironically. And you can even see this in movies. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie True Romance. Yes, uh, yes, yes. There's a this, scene with uh, that was That was, that was Sicilians. When they, yeah, there you go. And it's the same concept, <laughs> but for Italians, right? And it's yes. really interesting if you understand Gnosticism. Christopher Walken jumps right in and calls himself the Antichrist and the King of Liars. Yeah. That's all projected onto the Gnostic conception of the Catholic God, who's a liar and uh, arrogant, and ven he's got a vendetta, right? The Jehovah, the Old Testament, the vendetta God, whatever. So 
it's interesting that that Gnostic idea, which hates the Old Testament, is promoted by Jews who are bound to the Old Testament in Catholic countries, like with the Cathar Crusade. So that seems like a contradiction, you know, so that the proxy warrior effect. Um, but regardless, when you bring all these things into it, my point is you you got you can't trust anybody's interpretation really when it comes down to it. There's always a potential bias anywhere. Um, and even from old Christians who don't want anything to do with Jewish conversos, and I'd say that, you know, you could still lump them in with the tares because they're they they will uh, basically you know kind of take that position that the Jews can never be converted, which is obviously not the Catholic teaching either. So I would say that out of all of this, Ignatius of Loyola, as we get into his positions, he's in the middle ground of this, and I'd say that's where you want to be with all of these issues. Um, so before I move on, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add in response to that. Well, it's interesting that a lot of these problems, uh, I think, uh, persist today, <laughs> you know, with the uh, su subject of dual loyalty and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the many uh, people have written about the problems in the U.S. government and uh, how many uh, Jews are in government. What's their primary loyalty to? Is it to the Israeli state? Uh, we have a lot of uh, today, a lot of uh, espionage cases. Uh, being covered up, you're not really being investigated, uh, um, and uh, where you have uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Jewish uh, um, oh what's that called? APAC. APAC is uh, not subject to uh, the laws of other foreign uh, you know uh, lobbying groups. It's obviously it's an Israeli lobbying group, and of course the fact that no one can. Um, point out the uh, significance of, of Israeli uh, inf influence in U.S. government policy at the state and federal level. Uh, you, you're, you're called an anti-Semite if you just you know, say there's, there, that there's an issue here, there's a problem here. Um, so, and it's interesting again that uh, something like in 1946, the Jesuits would do away with that um, with that uh, policy uh, of exclusion right after the Second World War. And, you know, this is the right after, you know, and the, the, the Holocaust narrative, how guilt, again, is being used to, to um, convince people to let their guard down. Yeah, and ironically, the Jesuits were doing more to combat the Nazis than any other Christian organization that I could see when I actually have read some of the books and on look the issue. And look how that issue has been twisted, or that history regarding Pius XII and the Nazis and these things, how, you know, Daniel Goldenhagen and the book Hitler's Pope and these things where they take that history and they they completely twist it and somehow uh, blame the Catholic Church for what the Nazis supposedly did, or at least they make the Catholic Church complicit in it. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the other irony here uh, is that, you know, you have documentation of the Zionists working with the Nazis and basically the Nazis policy on exporting the Jews to Palestine was coming out of the policies or the suggestions of the Jews themselves. Now, the, the Nazis didn't adopt everything, but they picked and choose what they wanted to. And, you know, basically, I mean, I've been reading this book, uh, Anti-Semitism and Zionism, and, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that uh, th the... 
the, the Nazis would hang out at these Jewish meetings, and as long as they were promoting Zionism and, and Jewish culture and nationality, the Nazis checked it off as like, yep, that meeting was kosher, <laughs> no pun yeah. intended. And um, so there was an, there was an active uh, working together on a common goal. I'm not saying that they loved each other, obviously. There, there was still persecution, but the point is that that collaboration was, in my opinion, much more direct than any Catholic collaboration with the Nazis. Yeah, despite- yeah, yeah, there's no transfer agreement uh, between the Vatican and, and, and Berlin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's a concordat. You know, there's a, there's an, an understanding and a modus vivendi thing. But yeah, the uh, the, the Havara agreement, where you had this you know financial arrangement was set up to develop Palestine, so that you, you get Jews to emigrate and and change the demographics of the area, so they could eventually call it a Jewish state. And of course, the war itself, the tra- you know, the 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 destruction of the war, the travesty of the war. And uh, would create the political conditions where the Jews were able to establish a Jewish state in 1947 uh, by hook and by crook. I mean, they, they did it through terrorism, breaking all breaking laws in several countries, United States, illegal arms transfer. This involved the Jewish mafia and and also Jewish politicians and you know the Jewish agency and uh, Jewish editors and these things. So they were all in on it. And and they and really when it came down, they didn't care anything about the laws. Of their, of their governments, the, the, the objective was the creation of the Jewish state. And ultimately, the Third Reich, its defeat, but, but the war itself and the narrative that came out of that war uh, made the creation of the Jewish state possible. And this was, this was a, the long-term plan. And you simply wouldn't have gotten the mass migration of Jews out of Europe into, into Palestine if not for the Second World War, because they weren't yeah. getting anywhere prior to that. Yeah, and and you know, just just reading about that time, just very frustrating because just a very ugly situation all around for all the different groups. But interestingly enough, you know, this was a product of the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. The Nazis were trying to undo everything that Napoleon did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like Napoleon was all about assimilation to get rid of the Talmudic problem, and then the Zionists were all about segregation. Uh, and then the Nazis were too, so they had that common goal. Yeah, and Napoleon but, brought in Jewish emancipation. Yeah, yeah. Europe, and yeah. so there, yeah. there's interesting. There's an interesting, almost like dialectic of Hitler and Napoleon in terms of like their actions with the Catholic Church, trying to pragmatically use it. Uh, but at the same time, they have a plan for the Jews, but it's completely inverted. Um, and then you have also the issue of a, a lot of these Zionist Jews who hated assimilation. Well, if they have the Nazis who don't allow any, assim- uh, you know, Jewish assimilation groups uh, to do anything, that was the basic policy. Uh, you could only promote Zionism uh, in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, they're also conflating assimilation with converting to Catholicism or converting to Enlightenment paganism. They view those, it would seem, as kind of the same thing, right? Uh, you know, it's it's an assimilation with the culture, whether it's pagan or christian it's still a problem uh from that more zionist perspective or that uh you know jewish nationalist perspective um so these all you know all these problems we're discussing are you know kind of going back to this this issue here and um i guess uh to get back to the this jesuit uh battle um like i said this split into two different factions um and you know, it's it's pretty interesting how uh, 
the memorialistas movement this was spearheaded by spanish jesuits and you know as we mentioned uh there's there was a predominance of conversos uh converso jesuits in this movement um and they were reacting to the anti-converso policies of the roman jesuits so and again we have the superiors uh in mercurian and aquaviva who are they they held this third general congregation it's kind of you know just like a an ecumenical council of jesuits so to speak um and basically they they were they won out in that council that congregation but the difference was that the spanish jesuits just didn't comply they defied their superiors uh in this memorialistas movement and merricks even says that um you know they couldn't control the actions of them so some some might say they had a certain revolutionary spirit right your your superior general is telling you you know you got to do this and it's all in the documentation but they just won't comply to it and they didn't have the means to do anything so um and the other interesting thing is that there's particular people who are you know part of this movement or sympathetic to it one of them is this guy named Ribadeneira. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but the point is this guy was trying to minimize the number of Converso Jesuits in this memorialistas movement. He was trying to, you know, downplay it. Um, so why are you trying to hide that? Uh, well, some might say because that's the problem, but uh, it's admitted in the book that, you know, the Conversos were uh, a large number of this movement, if not the majority. So like you said, why do they happen to dominate this movement? That's very strange. Mm -hmm. Um, and so of course, in this book, it goes on to bash the Roman Jesuits conspiracy theories about this disproportion (laughs) and saying that there's, you know, there's an infiltration here and you can even read the, the, uh, a lot of different, uh, the arguments or the concerns some of them sound very legit and normal. There's a couple that are a little intense, but generally speaking, they're just legit concerns, and a lot of them tie back to the collaboration of the Muslims and the Jews. And this was, what, 400 years before the CIA uh, started using conspiracy theory as a uh, weapon against those who might be critical of the official narrative? <laughs> well, you know, it was a conspiracy from the start of Christianity, right? I mean, yeah. that's the whole point of the crucifixion. Yes. Um, and so... There, there's this this battle here. Uh, Wait, and... there's a conspiracy to crucify Christ? What are you, nuts? <laughs> nah, it just happened. It's coincidence. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got we to gotta reinterpret things in the Masonic understanding of the, the gospel, the natural Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so the point is that that whole battle is going on, and there's, there's basically three guys that I think are of note who are spearheading this memorialistas movement. Um, one of them is that Ribbonera guy we just mentioned, um, and again, if he's trying to downplay their predominance, there's a deception there. Uh, then there's also uh, Juan de Mariana. He's a very interesting figure. He's one of those Jesuits who wrote about regicide, um, and uh, you are probably are well aware of all those controversies and then a lot of the Protestant polemics against the Jesuits, you know, regicide and King James and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Right? So isn't it interesting that this converso 
who's spearheading this memorialistas movement and being anti, you know, uh, the Roman Jesuits who think there's a conspiracy theory. Um, well, he was uh, born the illegitimate son of a priest. So you got a priest who can't hold to his vows, has a kid, and, you know, he's of this conversal lineage. Um, and apparently one of his disciples is one of the ones that tried to kill the French king. And so that's where a lot of this, you know, regicide stuff. Now, I, I, will, uh, I would also say that from what I've read about this regicide controversy and his writings on it, I think that they're also over-exaggerated. They're kind of sensationalized. Um, however, it's, you know, still a, a concern or something you, you would want to look at. And there's, there's kind of maybe some Talmudic-esque things that you might find in some of these uh, early Jesuit writings, depending. But again, you really have to understand the context of what they're trying to say as well. So you got to be careful to not assume, I think. But he also wrote an economic treatise that got him placed under house arrest. <laughs> so I don't know what it was in his economic writings that the Jesuit superiors didn't like. Maybe it was tied to that stereotype of usury. I don't know. It didn't really say. Um, however, on the flip side, the plot against the church book uh, used his history as legitimate. So it would seem weird that a book that is trying to warn against the Jewish conspiracy is using this guy who has all these converso ties and a lot of strange behavior that would seem to be part of that. So he's just a very odd figure. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly what to think about him, but he's seen as a humanist. And he's also, when I look more into him, he's seen as a, a primitive source of liberal, democratic, progressive principles. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, you know, this guy's spearheading the movement and just a very strange person. So look into Juan de Mariana. He's kind of infamous. Um, another figure is Gregory of Valencia. Now, this guy is very interesting because he's seen as tied to that humanist, progressive, liberal tradition on some level. But he was also vehement in promoting the witch hunts. So those things don't seem like they go together, right? Uh, liberal progressivism and witch hunt activists <laughs> usually it's the liberal progressives that hate the witch hunts and talked about that as being dark ages catholic stuff right um so there's kind of like a bipolarity here you find um now this gregory of valencia he spent some time at ingolstadt which is where the bavarian illuminati had their their source um and you know uh What's interesting about the witch hunts, there's a, a good book on it, Witches and Witch Hunts by the author Beringer. Uh, this might be relevant to today. Basically, the witch hunts were generally in Protestant territories, mm -hmm. but there were a lot of Catholics spearheading it in Germany. However, the book also notes that these Catholics were kind of, in, you know, part of the Protestant culture. They were more Catholic in name. Uh, and there was basically th three or four main promoters of these witch hunts from the Catholic viewpoint, and Gregory of Valencia was one of them. Um, now, there was Jesuits such as Friedrich Spee, who was vehemently anti-witch hunts, and he was saying that in the Catholic culture nations, like Spain and Italy, where the Inquisition is there, there's no witch hunt problems for some reason. So that, that evil repressive inquisition actually was way more tolerant of the witch hunt hysteria and understanding of it 
and didn't incorporate, didn't fall for it, basically. Yeah, it was uh, one thing you also had that you had procedure and due process, as as was understood then, uh, where you, you didn't have that in the Protestant countries. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And and Germany, as far as I understand, was a little disorganized um, yeah. for, for many years. Um, and then per- perhaps that was some of their yearning for pan-German nationalism that was, you know, uh, in the psyche of the nation. I don't know. Um, but regardless, um, think about this. You know, we get kind of like a fanatical Catholics in name, but they're succumbing to the Protestant culture in Germany. Well, it's interesting. A lot of the Nazi leaders were Catholic, but they were obviously apostates, right? We, yeah. Voltaire grew up Catholic and was educated by the Jesuits, but do we consider him a champion of Catholicism? I don't think so. It's the <laughs> no, exact yeah. opposite, right? So that's kind of the point. And yeah, then look, look, at, look, at, uh, look at Hitler. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then look at today. What do we have going on in America? We have these Catholic so-called politicians like Pelosi, Biden, Cuomo, (laughs) Newsom, and they're all talking like Masonic liberals and tied to this, you know, America is just a Protestant culture historically. So do we see a pattern here that when Catholics start reneging from that, you know, Catholic culture that you would find in Spain and Italy during this time that had the Inquisition, it's funny that they didn't have the witch hunt problem, but these other ones in Germany seem to be spearheading the movement. So you can actually almost see an inversion there where some of these Catholics are acting like what people, you know, accuse the Jews of doing, getting to these positions of power, but they're also apostates. So it's kind of a weird relationship, like we, I kind of mentioned before, where, you know, we mentioned that part of the Jewish conspiracy is that they're going to try to get into positions of power and then turn us over to, you know, whatever their agenda is. And then part of the Protestant propaganda against Catholicism was Catholics will get into politics and then turn us over to the Pope, right? So similar broad concepts, but I think that, you know, uh, the distinctions are very different. They're they're pretty much opposite. That's my point. Yeah, and just the the broader issue of Americanism uh, itself and how it corrupts, you know, at least American Catholics um, might be an example of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Where uh, you know they uh, they become first and foremost Americans and the American ideology, which is you know Freemasonic, you know, I, you know I'd argue ju- ju- now Judeo Masonic, um, and so you see that with politicians, but, but but most Catholics, you know, and again we see that effect today with not just Americanism. Americanism has, has uh, infected, I think, the entire Catholic Church. Um, now we. So much. I mean, you, you talk about you know these Catholic countries like Spain, traditional Spain. These were confessional states, and so there wasn't any like really freedom of religion, and uh, there wasn't uh, this. Uh, they weren't uh, you know, diverse, or, or did they have uh, you know uh, they were all Catholic, and so a, 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 a different faith, uh, uh, people of a different faith, inveigling themselves inside the government, inside positions of power was considered a threat to, to the country's security. Uh, the same way that maybe having communists in government in the 1950s and 60s might be considered, you know, in the Cold War, would be considered a, 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 a viewpoint or an ideology contrary and to the rating ideology of the country. Every country has a rating ideology. Um, so uh, it's one of those things. That's why people, well, why would you, you know, exclude a certain religion from these positions well, you don't look at it from the standpoint of a confessional state. It's, it's these uh, a religion like when you talk about something of uh, Judaism and Catholicism are opposed to each other. 
over a critical issue. That is, of course, the uh, uh, the incarnation, uh, you know, the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the rejection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we people don't seem to have that appreciation in in the uh, the modern world, which is increasingly secular and religion has been shunted aside. It's something that, you know that's uh, you know, that's more or less uh, a hobby that can be uh, suspended uh, for any reason, as as you can see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, like uh, I think as Charles Kloom said before, um, you know, every regime or government has a a religion they confess to, whether they know it or not. Yeah. You know, and it's uh, you know, if we confess to this generic religion, like everything's accepted and and whatever then we see the result where everything's just kind of merged into this generic culture if we have this generic conception of deity or if it's you know a secular it it leans towards only materialist viewpoints on things and then everybody's just obsessed with race and that's all that matters and they miss all of the religious battles going on that actually are probably at the heart of the matter mm -hmm. and that's completely lost on them and then they're a slave to all of these dialectics so you know it kind of works and always Levels and you also think about, you know, the 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 nature of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, you know, the Sadducees were kind of assimilationists, and they were more secular, didn't necessarily believe in God, or but you know they they kind of succumbed to the nations and they they had a reverence for the tradition on some level, but you know they were arguing with Christ about you know the nature of the resurrection, and uh, you know like they they had that materialist viewpoint. Whereas the Pharisees still believed in God and all the spiritual stuff, but they had that elitism and the pride, right? And so yeah. you kind of see that in both Catholicism that that can happen, where you have a Sadducee. I would argue that our current church has like that Sadducee's nature where we're completely assimilating to the, the secular culture, at least in America. Um, and then sometimes you have that Pharisaical reaction, like the ultra trad that, you know, don't touch the Novus Ordo, you know, taint. It's kind of like that uh uber anti-pagan mindset you know where it's not sitting with the sinners right and so you can have that in Catholic i mean you can have that in anything but that's kind of like how that manifests in catholicism and then you have that also within judaism and then you see that battle where you know i was reading liberal jew uh, like kind of like leftists uh th they were the ones spearheading a lot of the uh israelization of the the police in america rhetoric <laughs> yeah you know it's it's kind of interesting like that that the some of those liberal jews were promoting that narrative as the cause of something like you know the, the recent incident mm -hmm. and so there there is that battle of the sadducees and you know the zionists which kind of an archetype embody the the pharisees i mean that's where you know rabbinical judaism comes from the pharisees tradition that's just in their history books right and so it's just funny that the battles that just they never change they just manifest in a different way based on the context of the times and certain groups get more power than others, uh, as you know, part of that uniqueness of the time period, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, so to wrap up this whole battle here and then we can get into Nixius to Loyola and just kind of wrap up on him. Uh, basically this is where the racial profiling came into question and came into play. So you had this huge battle, and apparently, it's kind of interesting, you have similar tactics where you have the memorialistas who were appealed to Rome and, and uh, the, the Portuguese state and the Spanish state. And basically, they're trying to say, we want our own autonomy, 
in other words, they want to be exempt from the Inquisition or they want to be in charge of themselves, i.e. they don't have to be examined by it or they're the ones doing the examining, right? So you could see there would be an agenda if you were a crypto infiltrator to either gain control of the Inquisition or avoid it altogether. And then on the flip side, you have the ones who are worried about that Converso infiltration. They're also appealing to Rome behind the scenes, trying to warn the Pope about all of this. So it's it's kind of funny how you see both sides doing the same thing, kind of trying to get their way behind the scenes. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, uh, the policy gets implemented, like we said, in 1593, that you, you cannot have any Jewish lineage whatsoever and get into the Jesuits. Uh, I don't know how much they purged of people who already had the Jewish lineage. Um, maybe they could stay, but they weren't accepting any new ones. I, I'm not, ex I, I'd have to double check. It's been a while since I've read through the book. Um, but like we said, regardless for the next 10 to 15 years, you know, that, that wasn't going to happen. And again, you have to also question, is that pragmatism? Maybe a lot of them didn't want it to come to that, but when the floodgates are open and you think that, okay, this is a legit problem. What are the solution do you have, mm -hmm. but to go to that stereotyping and, you know, it, it sucks. And maybe even some didn't want to do that, but they understood maybe the necessity of it. And well, also I mean, consider it, oh, sorry, go ahead. It would be like, you know, what if um, I'm an American citizen and um, I have a, a Russian wife and I apply for security clearance. And she has extended ties back into Russia. You might see that as an impediment for me being granting that granted that clearance. And so, exactly. and so the Jesuits are, this, this is an elite order with a very special mission. They're God's soldiers and, and they're fighting the Reformation, the Reformation, which, you know, largely was urged by, by Jewish influence. And, and it was, uh, you know, Cromwell's revolution and his, his Cromwell's re, we side was funded by Jewish, you know, finance and, you know, Jews in Holland. And, you know, um, so they were funding both sides because like Charles II was also funded by a different faction. Yeah. So <laughs> and he was more Masonic in his Catholicism. Yes. And then, you know, uh, uh, the glorious revolution took out the Catholic that was a bit more traditional. Yeah. It was very glorious. <laughs> yeah, it was James the second, right? James. Yeah, James the second. Yeah. And then um, the, the pretenders the are supposedly tied to the Stuart masonry. And that's the big boogeyman of the theosophists and the masons. They mm -hmm. hate that Stuart masonry. That's too Catholic. And, you know, they purge that as well. And you know, this is I mean, this this is because the uh, the English Reformation, it took, uh, I guess, what is it? Fifteen, roughly fifteen thirty seven up until sixteen eighty eight. You're talking one hundred and fifty years. It wasn't a done deal. <laughs> I mean, it was like there's a lot of uh, struggle and the legitimacy of Elizabeth and these things because she was the illegitimate daughter of Henry VIII, whereas you know Mary Queen Mary, uh, Bloody Mary was the legitimate heir, and I think it was Elizabeth had her killed, right? <laughs> so because <laughs> uh, of the uh, competition for the throne. Um, but my, my my point being it is that um, again you have, you have to understand the politics of the day, and I do think. Um, yeah, like I said, all things considered, this was the, the this was the the best solution to uh, to cleanse the order of of suspicion, which which would be considered paramount that order. Understanding that we live in an imperfect world, you know, it's like 
no, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. We have to do this because it's simply too tangled and there's, there's no better way to deal with this other than this exclusion. Yeah, and you see that all over the place, you know, yeah. with all kinds of things. And like you said, the, the Russian concern, the Russian problem, <laughs> Yeah. Um, as, you know, we have been programmed to uh, believe in here, um, you know, I... I know like what one of uh, my old bandmates was russian and and in order to get uh you know his, his wife like uh you know legitimized yeah they had to jump through so many hula hoops and it was just crazy all the restrictions and regulations and then they had university credits that didn't transfer over so you got to you know spend all your debt money get you know going to debt here yeah uh, for probably getting a, even a better education in Russia. Yeah, I know. Uh, and and but you know they want they won't allow that to transfer over. So it was just it's thing after thing after thing. But like, what about all these other nations that come from you know wherever uh, the, the, the refugees and you know the the south of the border? They seem to get all these perks. Yeah, it's fast. But the person fast coming track. from Russia yeah. is just like jumping through hula hoops and can and can barely get citizenship. You oh, because they you know they uh, they don't want uh, skilled European immigration to the United States. They want third world because that serves another agenda. Whether it's cheap labor or just uh, the cultural impact of mass migration, you know, immigration. You know. Yeah, and I know that's like one of the main criticisms. Like, well, you're taking you know Catholics from Latin America. And, and bringing them in and they're different than these, you know, uh, people from Protestant or Eastern Orthodox. You know, I certainly understand that that cultural issue there. But like we've talked about before, <laughs> how many of them retain that Catholicism? And sometimes they do. And they're actually the ones that still keep it going in the churches, like depending on basically what I've heard from just people I know that, you know, uh, are, are tied to, you know, Catholic immigrant families and stuff like that. So there's a lot more complexity with that as well. I certainly see some of the criticisms of it um, in terms of just like a, a pure promotion of Catholicism. And so you you have to kind of order things in, in a priority of primary, secondary, and tertiary effects. And I think that that is no different than what we're going over here. Um, well, the thing I've heard, I've heard that like even Catholic charities, it's uh, been been getting a lot of money like 800 million dollars a year from the federal government to resettle people from like somalia and latin america uh you know uh, ghana and these things and uh the uh group within the catholic church that's doing that is run by jews <laughs> yeah you know so <laughs> uh, wouldn't be surprised i guess and uh you know it, it's you know a big mess but you know looking back at all these different things are always big messes and then they get sorted out in ways that you don't necessarily foresee. Um, so you just kind of kind of weather the storm and then stick up for things when you need to. But, uh, you know, with, with regards to this issue, uh, I guess we can kind of transition into Ignatius Loyola and his role in all this, because if you think about it, you know, you hear all these claims, like I said, of people accusing him of being a crypto Jew and, the, the people also, you know, probably tie this book as, as proving it. And I would completely disagree with that. There's things in this book I would think actually prove the contrary. And um, if you also think about it, when the order started, uh, you know, all this controversy happened after Loyola died. Um, so if you really think about it, uh, if people were infiltrating 
you can't just throw it all out there at once. You got to boil the frog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, despite Loyola's ties to hanging out with certain alumbrados or whatever you want to call them, um, well, that's one of the the common, you know, polemics against him. And you know, again, it, it, Loyola was obsessed with imitating the life of Christ. So. What if that's sitting with the sinners? Just mm-hmm. because he's associating with them doesn't necessarily mean he's one of them. You have to look at what he promotes and what he was actually doing in his policies and what would actually benefit a crypto infiltration if there was such an agenda and what would hinder it, right? And so if we take that application and apply it to his life, you get some pretty interesting things. So I'll just go through some basic points in the book that... uh I think we, you got to contrast with that narrative of Loyola supposedly being a crypto Jew, Alumbrado, Illuminati, if you will. Um, one is that uh, the most draconian anti-converso or uh, I guess discriminatory towards Jews legislation that came out of Rome under Pope Paul IV uh, his most discriminatory papal bull uh, cum nimis, nimis absurdum. I'm terrible pronouncing the Latin here. <laughs> uh, I, I should be better at it because I have Italian heritage, but <laughs> regardless, <laughs> um, apparently, you know, th- this is, uh, you know, seen as the, one of the most discriminatory bulls against the Jews, right? That the, the mm-hmm. typical, they're the, the deicide people, all that kind of stuff that everyone says is, you know, the awful stuff of Catholicism. Well, Loyola had it shipped to all the Jesuit houses and he ordered that it be observed. So if he's a crypto Jewish infiltrator doing only things to benefit the Jews, that seems really counterproductive that he's promoting this discriminatory bull and shipping it to every single Jesuit house there is. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he'd be a, he'd be a terrible crypto infiltrator if he did that. <laughs> um, and he's ordering that this be observed. Uh, and then they make the point that he obeyed the Vicar of Christ unconditionally, even if he uh, didn't want these orders to be that harsh in his personal uh, views, he still obeyed them. Um, whereas we have these memorialistas who are not obeying, right? We talked about how they lost out in the legislation, but they just still wouldn't obey the superior general. They were mm-hmm. revolutionary. So that's quite a big difference there, right? Um, and then... Uh, part of these, this bull was to ensure economic restrictions for Jews in the papal states. Uh, and so, you know, obviously that's, that's probably a legitimate concern if you have a uh, usurious tendencies that have been cropping up. Um, yeah, that's again, some, something again that resonates today. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that was part of the, this papal bull. And then, um, there's also disputes that people say Loyola was a converso himself. He had Jewish lineage. Um, well, there's a, a lot of speculation that goes with that. Um, the only claim of somebody saying Loyola potentially had Jewish blood, and it did, it doesn't even matter. Like, I, I'm not even saying that this, if he did, it wouldn't even matter. That's my point. But if you're going to, you know, focus on that, uh, this claim comes from an historian named Kevin Ingram, and he speculates that Loyola had a converso grandfather because he's fit the prototype of a converso Jew. 
he was a merchant and an aristocrat at the court. That's it. <laughs> That's the only evidence of Loyola being converso. Is it a speculation on a grandfather who was a merchant? He was. He was an accountant. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, I mean, I, I get it, but like, yeah. it, it's funny how like now they're doing the reverse, and they're 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 trying to attach him to Judaism and they're stereotyping Jews to do it. So isn't that kind of ironic? <laughs> right. Um, so, so this is hardly an open, uh, ironclad open and shut case of his Judaism. Right. And then Merrick's even makes this clear in his writings that this claim is speculation. Um, now if you go to the, that historian Ingram's book on it, um, you also have to contrast that, that it's true that he, uh, was part of a, you know, Hidalgo family, right? He had Christian roots going back, you know, uh, many years that were tied to the old Christians. And that is what people mostly knew of, right? So, you know, he, he's mostly, if, if he had any of this converso blood, then it was very minimal. And they even stated that he wouldn't have even known that. Uh, it would have been unknown to him. So, the idea that he was a crypto Jewish infiltrator is just kind of absurd. Uh, it's speculation at best. And he wouldn't have even had been aware of that, <laughs> apparently. Uh, and, and, you know, in retrospect, people can do all this lineage digging and they can, you know, speculate. But, you know, there's nothing about him that would indicate that. Now, there are some statements that he supposedly made. That's or, you know, oh, uh, I wish he wishes he was Jewish because Christ was a Jew and he wished he would have been born of that line. Right. I don't know if you've heard that before. I have. Yeah. OK. Well, interestingly enough, a lot of those types of statements come from conversos who were his historiographers or biographers. And those conversos had a history of hiding their converso nature or their converso affiliations. So think about this. You have these biographers who are trying to pretend like they have no Jewish lineage. That seems a little suspect. And then they are writing these supposed statements from Loyola that he was all about the line of the Jews. Is there a conflict of interest there? Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so if those guys who are trying to hide their conversal roots are perhaps having an alternative agenda... And they want him to be way more pro-Jewish than he actually was. Why not insert some quotes post-mortem that he could never defend and then put that into your official history? Because these are part of his biographies, right? Um, and one of them was that Riba Denaria guy who was spearheading the Momorialistas movement. Uh, and he was hiding, his, you know, so, you know, it's it's all goes full circle. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so that kind of puts to rest that claim. Um, before I move on to the next one, I don't know if you had anything to respond with that. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, and then here's the interesting thing. Some people will say, well, he was denounced to the Inquisition, so he must have been an alumbrado because, you know, he was under suspicion, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, it's true that he did... Uh, get hauled into the Inquisition a few times. One of the in instances I think is really interesting. Uh, he was denounced by a converso to the Inquisition uh, for apparently Illuminist type activity and then like seducing women uh, with his Illuminism. <laughs> right. <laughs> but 
the interesting thing is the guy who had denounced him, like I said, he was a convert to himself, and he had a brother who uh, was entering a, the Franciscan order, and he was being looked at by the Inquisition. And he defended vigorously his brother who was being looked at by the Inquisition. So it seems odd that some guy who's a converso and his brother's trying to get into a Catholic order is being looked at by the Inquisition. He's the first one to defend him, but also he's one of the first ones to denounce Loyola to the Inquisition. That seems weird, right? Um, so my point is, could that be an attack on Loyola, right? Uh, this guy has a reason to hate the Inquisition, but is he pragmatically using it? I don't know. Um, but then apparently after Loyola got off scot-free, the guy started to befriend him. So I don't know if maybe he <laughs> chose a different tactic or maybe Loyola was doing the Christian thing and going to his accuser and befriending him because Christ actually says to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, th there is one of those instances. Now, also, if you remember like our talk about plot against the church— you know, one of the supposed telltale signs of the infiltrators is that they'll start denouncing the Inquisition as cruel, inhumane, and evil, right? Um, that would be the mark of an infiltrator. And we see that with the memorialistas who don't want to have anything to do with it, or at least, you know, be exempt from its eye. Um, but Loyola defended the Inquisition um, on several instances, uh, both the Roman Inquisition and the Portuguese one. And the Portuguese one is seen as being really draconian like the Spanish one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it seems odd that after being examined by the Inquisition two or three times himself, he's still promoting it and supporting it and fully backing it, even if he doesn't like uh, them overly biasing conversos, even if he's favorable to them being in the order, He's still supporting the Inquisition. So I don't see how any of that is going to help crypto infiltrators from the standpoint of Ignatius of Loyola. Um, and then continuing on, it's interesting how there's like some modern Jesuits who will write about the history of Loyola. And the, the modern like if, if the modern Jesuits are trying to co-op like these early, uh, you know, uh, progressive Jesuits as being what the Jesuits were supposed to be about. And then the dark ages took over through 300 years with them. Um, yeah. Well, they'd, they'd be searching for any, you know, pro converso stuff from Loyola. And it's interesting that this guy is kind of looking for that, but he has to admit uh, that this, this Jesuit William Meisner or Messner in his book, Ignatius of Loyola's psychology of a saint, he basically says, equally disturbing was Ignatius's support for establishing the Inquisition in Rome and the Papal States. So it's disturbing that Loyola was supporting the Inquisition in Rome and the Papal States from this modernist Jesuit's perspective. Um, and he talks about Ignatius vehemently combating the advance of Lutheranism in Italy, supporting the Inquisition for that. He's also supporting the one in Portugal, which the whole point about the one in Portugal is because it's looking out for Jewish infiltration or Judaizing, right? The, the, the Protestant Reformation hasn't really hit Spain and Portugal yet. That's not really a threat at this point. So he's supporting both the one that's against Protestantism and the one that's against, you know, quote unquote, Judaizing, right? Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, if he's a crypto subverter who supposedly wants to lead the church into progress towards tolerating Protestants and Jews, 
he's doing a really bad job of it. So, you know, again, like I said, that that claim, I hear it all the time in the alternative media uh, that want to tie the Jesuits to the Illuminati and all that crap. It's just absurd once you well, start looking. You get, the, you get the same confusion with Adam Weishaupt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you read the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati. The only, Ironically, the only reason we know what they think is because of Barwell, the Jesuit, who gave us all of their writings. Mm-hmm. We can read through them. And their mortal enemy was the Jesuits. They wanted to kick them out of all the universities, or at that time, a lot of more ex-Jesuits, because they obviously had been suppressed. But they didn't want them around them because they knew that they could snuff out their shenanigans trying to promote a primitive Marxism. Um, and but so, I, you know, I, yeah, again, maybe we could talk about that in the future. Yeah, I often hear that, uh, you know, often Adam Weissup is misidentified as a Jesuit. And uh, he was Jesuit educated. He wasn't a Jesuit. And he, he, what he did was he used Jesuit and Catholic tactics in the Illuminati. Uh, but uh, he just applied their methods for his purposes, which is a completely different thing than saying he was a, he was a Jesuit. And I think his family was a conversive family, if I recall. Yeah, actually, that claim I, I read has been debunked mm-hmm. uh, there. It actually came from a, a National Geographic article promoting that. And that, that article even tried to say that the Rothschild backed the Jesuit, uh, excuse me, the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati, which is not true. So it's funny, a mainstream National Geographic New World Order institution is promoting those conspiracy theories that they revise, I think, the article. But um, uh, either way, the, the point is, well, guess what? That was Catholic Bavaria where it was very Catholic and the Jesuits educated people or they were tied to the education system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So to say that somebody's Jesuit trained in a Catholic country is just stupid because that's like, what else is there? <laughs> they were that's, running it. That's what the know? Jesuits did. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so the point is, like I said, with Voltaire, he was Jesuit trained, but he did everything to fight them and get them suppressed. And again, if you read Barwell's memoirs, Voltaire is conspiring against the Jesuits constantly saying that they're the number one enemy to that's got to go because they're the ones who can point out all of their BS. Mm-hmm. And he even had to deny caught conspiring against the Jesuits that nobody could support him. But I'm sure Voltaire was secretly applauding him until that happened. So it's kind of like you got to save face. So like I said, this is Barwell's memoirs. That's a whole other thing. Maybe we can do another show on that in the future because that will flesh out all of these things. Yeah, the Jesuits but, are suppressed in what, 1760s and then you have the French Revolution. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, there's the, a the silly notion that, oh, the Jesuits were so angry at their suppression they caused the French Revolution as vengeance. Yeah, sure they did. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just, you know, I mean, I, these are things you'll hear floating around and they're just stupid. Um but anyways, uh, the point is, the, there's a lot of s- statements about Loyola. He did not discriminate against having conversos into the order based upon blood, which is the Catholic position. So he wasn't a Nazi, <laughs> right? <laughs> he wasn't on the other side. And, and he also, um, there's statements in here in the book uh, where... Uh, that one of his secretaries of Loyola is giving a response to this Converso issue. And Loyola himself said, we should be more cautious with them, but we're not going to not let them in. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's just makes sense, right? Common knowledge, you're not discriminating. That's the Catholic way of being. Right? Um, and 
so uh, you have that aspect. And then kind of like the nail in the coffin to like debunk the whole, uh, you know, he's a crypto infiltrator or, you know, converso alumbrado, whatever, is uh, in his constitutions uh, that he's making, he didn't have anything about any sort of converso lineage question for the bulk of it. But like I said, this is a new development, a new order. Uh, they haven't had a need to address that. Um, but he's basically at the end of his life, he's on his deathbed for the last couple of years. He's very ill. Um, and so at the very end, he's deliberating the final constitutions that he's going to pass on to this newly found order. And he decides after a lot of deliberation, apparently that he's going to add in a question for the application that they must answer that if they're of a conversal lineage or not. So this guy's dying breath, he inserts a question saying, are you part of a Jewish lineage? Right? If he's a crypto subverter, why before he dies, like he's not going to have to be accountable to anything. Why wouldn't he leave that out? That would open the floodgates. But mm. that one question actually led to the legitimization of the people who had concerns for it and then the battle ensued once you know all of the problems happened and also consider if there were infiltrators were they waiting for him putting the pedal to the metal and try want to ask but um yeah i mean that pretty much wraps up the issues on loyola and his alleged crypto judaism um so yeah that i'd suggest people to you know if you don't believe me go read the book yourself it's dense reading and i can understand how people could conflate things with this because mm -hmm. it is difficult reading similar to memoirs it's very difficult reading so if you see the words jesuit illuminati together in a sentence Sometimes people automatically throw them together and conflate, conflate them because they see those words because they've been so programmed by that rhetoric that's been going on in the alter, or alternative media for a long time, which really kind of comes from a lot of Protestant polemics. Hmm. Okay, good. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I said, uh, if you want to you know, do a, a part two or three sometime and expand upon this into the French Revolution and the... Uh, memoirs of Jacobinism, what that re what it actually reveals versus what a lot of people say about it and how it all is just kind of like the next level of dealing with this, you know, the same battle that has nothing new under the sun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be good because uh, that yeah, it involves the French Revolution, of course, the involvement of the uh, of, of Scottish right Freemasonry and the, uh, and the uh, Freemason Lodge, you know, the, the British and their involvement in that and fomenting that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there, there's issues that spill into uh, Russia, you know, the Enlightenment with Russia, Peter the Great, mm -hmm. Catherine the Great. And there's a there's an interesting irony where Frederick the Great is one of the biggest conspirers against Catholicism. But he will also even him admit that the Jesuits are good for info, uh, education. And so he allows them into his country. But perhaps he feels more comfortable about that because. You know, they, they have no <laughs> jurisdiction anymore and they're kind of at the mercy. Uh, and then Catherine the Great also lets them in. And, um, you know, ironically, 
the the Jesuit superior in Russia influences her son, Tsar Paul I, who was very hostile to Masonry and perhaps was killed for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and another irony is that Catherine the Great was succumbing to all of this Enlightenment propaganda. And she was going to try, she was offered D'Alembert, who's one of the worst subverters. If you read through memoirs, you just, you know, <laughs> he's not a person you'll end up uh, liking in any way, shape, or form. He was one of the most vehement anti-Jesuits. But Catherine the Great was duped enough to try to offer him a tutoring position of her son, who becomes Tsar Paul I. But luckily, he turned it down. And he thought that that was uh, indicator enough of how much Russia had succumbed to philosophy that they, they would even offer her, uh, uh, offer him a position. Um, and so luckily he turned it down. And later on, the Jesuit uh, superior in Russia uh, starts educating him a bit in, I think, his 20s. And like I said, he was uh, one of those people who's kind of written out of the history books, but I also think one of the the people who saw through the Masonic shenanigans and, like I said, was probably killed for it. Hmm. Oh, so, okay, well, uh, so, yeah, this, um, so where can people follow your work? Um, yeah, I actually have a website now. I have paid members content. Um, there's various plans. Um, you can go to www.rockstaresoterica.com. It's kind of an allusion to... You know, my my life before all this research, I was, you know, into music and I still have things I'm trying to do with that. Uh, but setting aside that, uh, they can go there and um, I have the podcast going. There's a second hour. Obviously, you were just on that. Mm -hmm. you, you can get a podcast only plan. It's really cheap. Thirty bucks a year. Uh, and that's good if people just want summarizations of things. And the uh, the members content has a lot of the, the deeper research, lots of content lots of information so if you're more interested in listening to things in depth i'm actually going through barwell's memoirs right now i think that that book is incredibly important especially with the result of those enlightenment principles uh, that we see destroying everything today mm -hmm. uh, i think that that really helps identify the source but like i said if you want to read through memoirs it's very difficult to read it took me a very long time i had to look up a lot of words i felt like <laughs> really stupid and inadequate but I also, it's written in a way that, um, you know, Barwell writes as if people know who the figures he's talking about are. So then you need also the context because it's kind of like the Gospel of Matthew. It's written for the Jews. So if you don't understand the Jewish traditions, you're going to be a little bit lost on what he's trying to say. So with Barwell, there's a lot of people who are described that you're going to have to poke into history. And so what I do is I give you the wasp version of a lot of these people, you know, Voltaire, D'Alembert, Diderot etc. And we do a compare and contrast. So it's really in depth and I'm going through all of memoirs and kind of giving a, uh, a 2.0 version, a modernized version that, you know, can translate <laughs> for modern mm -hmm. people, a lot of these things and, uh, go into some interesting things. But Barwell has some controversies around, uh, you mentioned before the protocols of Zion is kind of being like a red herring. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's uh, there's something called the Simonini letter that has probably the most legit uh, concerns and evidence about, you know, an actual overt agenda tied to any of the uh, 19th century shenanigans that are, you know, part of the same question we're looking at here. 
Barwell is all uh, integrated into that. I do that, uh, go into that in depth at the very beginning. Um, so there's a lot of stuff. People can check it out. Uh, and um, I also have other series where, you know, obviously a lot of my older analysis was tied to occultism, trying to understand it and then applying it to, like we talked about, JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. So I, co- I kind of like for people who are kind of into the occult stuff, but they're interested in Catholicism or Christianity in general. I have a series where I sort of transmute a lot of the broad concepts, but bring them into a Catholic understanding. So if you're more on that wavelength of being enamored with the occult stuff, that might be useful for you. I also go through another series that goes through the Bible and we go through a couple chapters each week and go through some of the Catholic teachings. So we have the primary Bible text, the secondary, you know, the interpretation of the tradition. And I try to have my own tertiary, uh, tertiary uh, explanations and insights so there's a, a lot of content. Uh, you can go check it out. If, if people are interested, you can email me and I can even send some people some samples. So there's that. And then obviously the podcast, um, you can just uh, go to Podbean. I'll give you the links. You can put them in the description. Yeah, yeah. Put, yeah. And uh, people can check them all out. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> I've uh, put a lot of work in the last year into all of this stuff. So, And there's different tiers, you know, for the person who just wants it summarized in a couple podcasts, a couple times, every, once every week or two. And then the people who want to go really in depth and you can watch stuff like a, a Netflix binge, <laughs> basically, <laughs> um, if you uh, it, but at least you're uh, not getting the liberal propaganda. with it. You're getting the complete opposite. Yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, go to the website uh, if you want to know more. And obviously, my YouTube channel is, is still functioning for uh, certain things. Great. OK. OK, well, that sounds good. I'll uh, yeah, when I, I'll post the soon, I'll do I'll send you the links and I'll put, yeah, provide all those links so people can. Yeah, go to them so we'll go from there so yeah well thanks for having me on and uh if you want to do it again go into borrow's memoirs just let me know i'm i'm ready to come back whenever you are yeah maybe when you're uh you know you're burnt out from talking about everything going on now you need a little <laughs> bit of a break uh at least it's we're, we're more passively talking about things going on now than actively yeah so yeah nice it, yeah that's uh it, it's it's ever-changing and evolving so it's you know <laughs> something else all right well thanks a lot tim and uh, always a pleasure okay thanks good night then and i'll be in touch if not for you babe i couldn't even find the door couldn't even see the floor i'd be sad and blue if not for you If not for you, then night would see me right away. The day would surely have to break. It would not be new. If not for you, if not for you, my sky would fall. Rain would gather too Thought you love I'd be nowhere at all I'd be lost if not for you If not for you The winter would hold no spring Couldn't hear a robin sing I wouldn't have a clue 
Itapoyu. <laughs>